Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. You would need to have a very big view of the world to be able to tackle a topic like God and the future of humanity. But that's exactly what Dr. Dennis Alexander is doing right now uh, in a series of lectures at New College, which is a Christian college at the University of New South Wales. The annual New College lectures are a real feature, and they provide international speakers of great renown uh, to tackle really big subjects. In this case, the subject chosen by Dennis, God and the Future of Humanity. Note it's not the future of God and humanity, because that's the way an atheist might pose the question. That's the way many scientists might pose the question, because one of the things that bedevils our civilization at the moment is the discussion that kind of goes along these lines. Science will eventually do away with the need for God. Well, Dr. Dennis Alexander is the Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at St. Edmunds College, Cambridge, and a very respected molecular immunologist. And it's my pleasure to say welcome to the studio, Dr. Dennis Alexander. Well, thank you very much. What a thrill to have you, and there's so many things that we can talk about, but I want to start by talking about you, your background, your faith. Uh, When were you aware of a personal faith? I guess I became aware of a personal faith quite young because both of my parents were Christians and I was raised in a Christian home and I did the normal kind of thing. We went to church and I had Sunday school and all that kind of stuff. And I went to a rather wonderful organization, which at that time in England was called Crusaders, which happily since that time has changed its name. <laughs> but well, we certainly have so. Crusaders here. It's going strong. Oh. It's still doing fantastic work with young people. Is that right? Yes, okay. absolutely. Well, you know, having lived in the Middle East, I didn't like to say I became a Christian through Crusaders. The Crusaders. <laughs> that wasn't you, such a great thing. They, rather, okay. they call themselves crew camps now. Crew camps, Yes. Right. Okay, yeah, that's probably wise. <laughs> uh, so I went on, started going on their camps and at the age of 13, suddenly realized, um, or possibly gradually realized, but anyway, that I needed to make a personal commitment to Christ, hmm. uh, and that I wasn't a Christian, uh, just because my parents were Christians, hmm. and so I had to uh, make a step of personal faith, and that's what I did. So I became a Christian when I was age 13. Now, where did you go to study after school? When, when did the science study start? Well, the science study starts pretty early in what I guess you call high school. Or I went to a public school, which is confusing because, of course, in British language, that's a private school. Yeah. Uh, you know, the language game is here very confusing. But uh, so I started specialising in the sciences from the age of 15 onwards and then went to Oxford to do biochemistry, uh, which is, I suppose, when I got more seriously into, into science. So it's a four-year course Mm. we're talking about here. You would have encountered many people in that time, because I certainly talk with students today for whom those years are a massive challenge to their faith just because they're, they're in an environment... Well, students say to me, you know, we walk into a biology lecture now and we know that the lecturer has a different view from us about Christianity. We almost feel that it's a hostile environment in which to be, uh, in, in which to be a student. I'd say Oxford at that time, we're talking about the 60s here, Oxford at that time, student-wise, were going through a great social revolution. Mm-hmm. We had the Vietnam War, we had protests, there was a lot of social activity, and so forth and so on. But my own experience as a Christian there was it was very friendly to my Christian faith. Uh, I don't say I would say my Christian faith was uh, greatly strengthened during my time in Oxford. Mm. My tutor, who was uh, my tutor in biochemistry, Arthur Peacock, who later on actually became rather well known in a 
field of science religion, used to run a discussion group in my college where he was uh, seeking to get us engaged to think more carefully about the relationship between science and faith. So that was very valuable to me. Mm. And of course, Oxford colleges, as well as Cambridge colleges, they all have a chapel and they have a choir and they have Christian mm, roots yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So although there was certainly, you know, I'm not saying that, um, you know, Oxford was a great hotbed of Christian faith at that time. On the other hand, um, it was perfectly friendly, I found, to Christian faith. And of course, Richard Dawkins had not yet been invented back in those days. And so, uh, you know, nobody had heard of him. So there wasn't anything like the new atheism or yes. that kind of stuff. That was to come much later. Well, and it's come with a vengeance. Now, one of the reasons you're here in Australia is to give college, uh, lectures at New College, which is a college of the New South Wales University. What are the students telling you about their life in that world that you've trod? Well, they're a great big mixture, really. I don't think one can generalise about, you know, based on the small number of students relatively that I have spoken with. But I suspect that for many of them doing science, if they are Christians, then they have sensed somewhat of a hostility, I think, to their face, sometimes in a lecture theatre. Somewhat surprisingly, I heard about a lecturer in biology just the other day, I may not have been in New College, who was publicly in front of the students highly hostile to faith in the context of a biology lecture. Mm. I, find, I say it's surprising because, I don't know, certainly in Cambridge that would be illegal and, and you could get mm. taken to court for mm. that, basically mm. because, uh, you know, in biology you're just supposed to talk about biology and not give your own opinions about politics or faith or anything else. Mm. So that I found quite surprising. Um, but that was the only story I've heard about overt hostility to faith. And as I say, I've only been here a few days. This is not a sociological study. And, you know, I will not base my opinions on uh, very few examples. Okay, so. there's, there's quite a well-known um, biology lecturer around, around the place uh, who actually publishes um, the results of a survey that he's been doing for, I think, 15 or 20 years or something. Uh, and the story goes something along the lines of, at the start of every biology one sort of lecture, he asks the students, what do you believe? Do you believe in that God created the world in seven days? Do you believe that God directed a process of um, creation which incorporated evolution? Or, you do, or do you believe in evolution? Now, the results he... Um, he published the other day a saying that over, I think it's the 15 years, the number of people saying that they believe in God being involved is declining fairly, you know, steadily. And that tallies with what we're seeing in the census and other things around about the place. But um, my thought about that was that he's a well-known non-believer. And if you walk into his lecture on day one and he's asking you, now it's an anonymous survey, yes, but imagine the pressure. Mm. And it's just a really interesting thing to do and to track the results and then to publish the results as if to say, ah, yes, you see, we're doing away with the belief in God. We're mm. becoming more modern as a society. Mm. Mm. Um, so what, what what do you make of all of that? Is that well, the direction science is taking us? I, yeah, it's an interesting point. Just on that specific point you raised there, uh, we have a, um, a postdoc researcher working with us in the Faraday Institute in Cambridge who's been looking at various aspects of the evolution creation discussion. And out of that has come, in fact, she uh, sponsored a YouGov poll, which is, you know, it's one of our main polling organizations mm -hmm. in the UK. Uh, therefore, they did a nationwide survey. And out of that came some data, well, 
The question is, what percentage of the UK population self-identify as creationists? And it's somewhere between 1% and 2%, basically. And it depends how you ask the question. Mm. And in the 1% and 2%, you're going to pick up quite a few people uh, out of the Muslim population in Britain as well, who actually are not young Earth creationists, but they kind of don't like Darwin, and so they tend to lump themselves with the creationists mm, in mm. that way. So like all these polls, you know, as you say, it depends how what the context is, what questions you ask, uh, that sort of thing. And you can get different numbers. But like, we just thought it was quite interesting. That number is quite low. I mean, 1% to 2% is pretty small percentage of the population. And you've got people like Richard Dawkins who wring their hands in horror at even having one creationist who might be there, especially teaching <laughs> in schools. And I think sometimes uh, because of the way the media works, uh, some of these things can get overinflated. You know, and I, I think most Christians in Britain, I think, are perfectly okay with evolution, frankly. You know, I don't think they have a problem with that, but Again, you'll get some who have a problem with it. So, Our guest on Open House is Dr. Dennis Alexander, Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at St. Edmunds College, Cambridge, and a distinguished molecular biologist and so many other things. Also, um, previously, the editor of um, Science and Christian Belief, a journal that talks about this very subject. Well, in academic circles, not just at university level, but certainly at school level, and where there's lots of funding involved and questions of religious freedom and the right of religious organisations to run schools, all of those highly ideological debates, this argument, in this country at least, is trotted out all the time. We, we always seem to be arguing about it. So let's go back and, and take your view on it. You're a man who spent your life thinking and writing about this area. Firstly, um, let's get some terms. Creationism or young earth creation, you've used that term. What, what do you mean when you say that? I think in general usage, of course, words are defined by their usage, so we have to think about that. Mm. I think the general meaning that I think about when I'm talking about young earth creationism is simply people who believe the world is less than 10,000 years old, that uh, everything was brought into being on six literal days of creation, and especially that humans were created out of the dust, sort of like now, I mean, like on that day. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's one category of belief, I think. Old Earth creationists tend to believe, as the name suggests, in an old Earth, and therefore they believe usually in some process of evolution, but they also generally believe in six days of creation when all the major kinds were brought into being and so forth. Six so, days uh, or six periods of time? Well, some I was going to say, you mm. know, that you're... I mean, the old Earth creationists sort of um, cohort are probably people with a range of views. So it's, yeah. you know, uh, so some would see that as a period of time. And, but I think that would emphasize specific acts by God that maybe set out the, set off the six major categories of life as they would see it or something like that. So it's, it, it's a halfway house in a way between young earth creationism and where I would, uh, you know, put myself, which would be as a theistic evolutionist, if that, or um, evolutionary creationist, or whatever you want to call it, you know, <laughs> whatever label you choose. But um, a Christian who is a scientist and a biologist who just believes God does everything, and it's up to science to try and find out what God does. And that's our job, basically. And for that, we go back to Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century, um, who distinguished between God as a primary cause and all those secondary causes, whereby God brings into being, you know, all that we see in around us and all that we study as scientists. So the job of a scientist is to explore God's world, find out how it works, describe that in scientific terms and other terms as well. Um, and that's how I see the process of evolution. It's simply 
uh, if you like, God's way of bringing uh, human beings and other animals mm. and mm. wonderful diversity in the created order into being. In your view, then, as a theistic evolutionist, well, I like that, uh, is God directing the process or does he set a process in, in motion uh, which kind of follows out the natural laws that God has created? Yeah, I think the expressing it in precise terms can be challenging, but certainly in the Bible we have the concept of a God who is involved in the whole created order. God is, we call it theologically imminent in mm. the created order. Mm. Um, I think many people would see God as transcendent, therefore God is distinct from and uh, all-powerful and rather separate from the universe that he's brought into being. Mm. But there's no doubt at all that when you read um, let's say Colossians 1, a chapter in the Bible, um, Colossians 1.16, it talks about in Christ all things exist. Mm. So in other words, through the word of God, and you get that in John chapter 1 as well, so through the word of God, through the power of God, um, and through the word of God, Christ, all things are holding together. That's well, how yes. Paul expresses it. So the idea here is that the whole created order, all the materiality, the energy, everything that exists, exists uh, by God's continual say-so, upholding, and so forth. So God, as the author of creation, I think, is perhaps a helpful metaphor. It's a metaphor, but still, I would see the book of the created order as written by God and sustained and upheld by God all the time. People who listen to this program regularly will know that this is the view that I hold. So we have heated agreement, but I need to test this because it's a contestable idea. Um, you've come to that by saying, I know God personally, I have an experience of him, and I have no doubt that he exists, that the Bible is true, that Jesus was who he said he was, that the Easter th events happened, and so on. And then to paraphrase what you said a moment ago, now as a scientist you say, science will help me to explore how God did things. But you take someone like a Richard Dawkins or some of these other new atheists or just the, the person who has a scientific mind but has never really thought deeply about theology, they will say, I study science to find out what's behind all of this. So you're coming at it from opposite directions in a sense, aren't you? Well, I think we're all doing the same science. I mean, to me, <laughs> uh, the scientific community is a whole um, bunch of people with very different worldviews often. Yeah. And in my lab, you know, I've closed my lab down, but I've retired. But uh, my lab would always have people, I don't know, of every worldview you can imagine. I mean, every religion, every atheist, and, you know, everything. And often I wouldn't even know. Why would I know? So we're all, you know, I think the scientific community is rather wonderful in that way. We can all work together when, and uh, with using common methodologies and assumptions to try and work out how yeah. things work okay. is, is it right so, to say the science is neutral because it uh, seems to me sometimes there are value assumptions even in the way you set up an experiment there can be value assumptions i think a lot of science to be honest i was in molecular immunology and in the more molecular aspects of science <laughs> you know a molecule is a molecule and it's the same for everybody so i think um at that level usually it's pretty neutral in that sense now of course the applications may be we may differ about how we apply that yeah. but i think the point here is that uh, both richard dawkins and i believe more or less the same about evolutionary biology. I happen to believe the selfish gene is not a very good metaphor. Um, I think science has moved on and so forth. And I think even Richard is a bit embarrassed by that now in a sense, or he wants to move away from that. because. Mm. For, so we can discuss the details of evolutionary biology. But I think the key point here is that Richard Dawkins is looking at the universe through atheistic, rather dark glasses, I think. you know, He's seeing it as a blind, pitiless mm. uh, kind of process without any rhyme or... Uh, rhyme or reason or ultimate meaning or purpose 
Uh, I'm coming with Christian glasses on, I, if you like. I'm looking at the world in a different way, and, and therefore I interpret it in a different kind of a way. So same science, different metaphysical interpretation. Does that compromise you as a scientist? I don't think so. I mean, after all, science was started by modern science. Experimental science was was started by Christians, basically. Mm. If you go back to the uh, 16th, 17th centuries, early modern period, if we're looking at the type of science we now recognize today with journals and scientific societies and a very important role for empirical science, for experimental science, then I think we have to look to the so-called scientific revolution for that, that emergence, really, of modern science. And when we look at it, we see Christians all over the place founding the disciplines that we uh, enjoy today. It seems to me the most natural thing, historically speaking, uh, for a Christian to do is to do science. Well, that's really interesting because, yes, perhaps it's only in this century that we have, well, this century in the last now, uh, that you have a highly stylized, very contentious sense of contest between the new atheists and Christians surrounding the science question. Uh, as you've said, in generations gone by, it would have been perfectly natural. Yes, I'm a Christian, I'm investigating. And in fact, uh, Charles Darwin makes references to God, to the Creator, and so on. Mm-hmm. There, There is a sense that there is a purposeful process being driven by someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Christians sometimes claim, therefore, that Darwin was a Christian. But I'm not, I'm not sure that I quite get that sense. What what do you make of that? Well, historically, of course, when Charles Darwin went to Cambridge, he went. Um, part of his studies were divinity. His father expected him to go into the church to be a priest in the Church of England, mm. uh, and also, and so he declares himself to be even to join Cambridge at that time where we remember that all the teaching was carried out by Anglican clergy yes, in that yes, period. Yes. And uh, so he had to declare himself as um, as a Christian, as someone who believed at least in the orthodox doctrines of the Church of England. Now, one gets the impression of Darwin at Cambridge that uh, he wasn't very enthusiastic about his faith. He was very enthusiastic about collecting beetles. And he spent a lot of time uh, also in the Glutton's Club, which is a club for eating exotic foods, you know, and that sort of thing. And sort of things that undergraduates do, you know, that's fine. But uh, during the time then after graduation, when he went on the Beagle, I think he was certainly still self-identifying as a Christian on the Beagle. After all, that's a government-funded ship. He was active in encouraging the sailors on the ship to have Sunday morning worship and helped the captain of the ship in that and so forth. So I think it was only really during the voyage, the later voyage, um, that he gradually you know, began to have doubts, and then in later life he drifted away from faith. So when Thomas Henry Huxley invented the word agnostic in 1869, um, then I think Darwin was very grateful for the word. And he said, now I know mm. what I am, and he adopted the word for himself. So he, he sort of drifted away from faith. But, I, you know, I always get the feeling in reading his letters, it was never really a very personal committed faith. Mm. It was It mm. was a rather... Uh, It was rather a faith based on William Paley originally, natural theology. Um, He Mm. loved Paley. He studied Paley at Cambridge. And in his autobiography, he says, um, he remarks on the great influence that Paley had on his own thinking. In fact, some people have called The Origin of Species uh, the last great work of Victorian natural theology, 
because it's very much shaped in a sort of Paleyan way. And, you know, that sort of... What does that mean? Well, William Paley was... He lived sort of... Um, well, some of his best works, best-known works on natural theology were published around um, 1802, 1800, that sort of time. Mm. And he was an archdeacon in the Church of England. Um, and he was rather responding to people like David Hume uh, and some of his writings. And he wanted to argue for the existence of God based on... Uh, you know, the created order, all the wonderful things in creation around mm, us. Mm. And he really went to town on that. And he, he really has wonderful descriptions of zoology and what we call now zoology, botany, and so forth. But what he would do was to ascribe to each particular complex thing, let's take the eye, for example, famously, um, <laughs> you know, this story about him. He, he, he had this famous story, you know, where somebody crosses the heath and their foot kicks against a stone and they pick it up and there's a watch. And, you know, that, where does that come from? Well, it must be designed. And so, so you get this very strong kind of design art argument and so the the unfortunate thing of course it's easy to be wise in retrospect the unfortunate thing was that he uh, invoked design arguments based on what we would now say after darwin natural selection did a pretty good job in explaining okay so so the danger was of course um twofold first of all he portray god as a rather rationalistic god who made up laws and then just let the laws follow their own pathway which is not really the biblical understanding of the more personal involved god that we have Mm. Uh, but also secondly um, he sort of set up this sort of god of the gaps idea i think i don't think he intended to do that but in retrospect when darwin came along and said explained how all things came into being through this evolutionary process and by the way natural selection plays a very central role in that then suddenly well natural selection took the place of the god of the gaps the god of the gaps and yes. you know that's all, it just happens in history over and over again ever since you know that, and and you, know, so, you uh, put stephen yeah. hawking into that category wouldn't you the god of the gaps i would rather i mean the late stephen hawking um Yes. I mean, I think his concept of God was um, a little bit like that, to be honest. Uh, The God he didn't really believe in. Uh, Even more so, of course, Richard Dawkins. I mean, Mm. the God that Richard Dawkins doesn't believe in is not a God that I believe in either. So Richard Dawkins (laughs) disbelieves in the God of the gaps. So I'm an atheist also with reference to the God that Dawkins doesn't believe in. Doesn't believe in. If that makes sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, it's the God of the gaps. I don't believe in that God of the gaps. Dr. Dennis Alexander is with us, Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. St. Edmund's College in Cambridge. Well, Dawkins then proposes this other thing. Well, not just Dawkins, but um, if there's a spectrum, you you have uh, the God of the gaps, an idea that there's a, a benevolent force that's directing changes at various points, intervening, if you like, different from the God of the Bible, who, if you said, is both transcendent, outside of our reality, and imminent, working in his creation. Uh, so that's that's your belief, that's traditional Christian belief, the God of the gaps, that there's a benevolent intervention every now and then. But we're at this other end of the spectrum now, aren't we, where, where people like Dawkins say um, the universe acts exactly as if it would if there was no God. So therefore, he, since he's almost setting, uh, well, he, he is setting out to disprove God. But multiple, multiple universe theory, which seems on the surface quite preposterous that every single opportunity every single thing that can happen can happen and we just happen to be one of those timelines that set up this way so if there's anything outside of our existence it is randomness itself 
on the surface, it seems almost as bizarre as proposing ex nihilo that there's a god, doesn't doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, I, I have some good, um, you know, in Cambridge, I have some good friends who are, that's their field, it's not my field, and uh, certainly some of them are Christians, and some of them are quite happy with the idea of a multiverse. Really? And are there they gods are, in their multiverse? Well, what they, so what they would tell me, and maybe I shouldn't cite names here, but I, yeah. one in particular who is uh, very well into this field, would say, well, look, um, there are some elegant, you know, string theory mathematical equations which make the possibility of a multiverse at least plausible or possible. Let's say possible might be a better word. And so they are um, solutions really of Einstein's equations and uh, updated through string theory. They then point towards this possibility that there might be many, many different universes and we happen to be living in the one in which life is possible. So my Christian uh, friend who said that will also point out, which uh, something I agree with, is, you know, God is very creative um, and if God wants to make many universes, why not? Okay, I didn't see that it has any relevance to a belief in God. In other words, if you believe in a God who creates one universe, which is what Christian believers believe in, <laughs> why not believe in a God who creates many universes? I mean, there's no, I didn't see any particular objection to that on theological grounds, on theological grounds. However, if you go for the version of the multiverse that says, in the way you just indicated, there's an infinite number of universes, mm. then you do end up in a bit of nonsense, really, because therefore there must be a universe in which science is false. There must be a universe in which Richard <laughs> Dawkins is a Christian. Uh, there must be a universe in which I'm not sitting here in Sydney, but I'm sitting somewhere else yeah. uh, doing this radio interview and so forth. Yeah. And in a sense, it leads you down the pathway of uh, actually it's very anti-scientific in a sense because you end up having to believe that science can't be universally possible hmm. because there will be a universe in which science is not possible or is, is not true uh, and therefore you get into all kinds of nonsense situations hmm. now by the way that's not the only version of the multiverse there are more restrict restrained versions of the multiverse than that hmm. one hmm. But it has those sort of dangers i think but let, let's land this plane again so to, to go back to where we began in a sense um all of these levels of inquiry, you would say, I imagine, um, none of those levels of inquiry comes close to uh, denying the reality of the God who you know. Well, that's right, because I think God seen in Christian theology as the source of everything that exists, mm -hmm. the mind behind all that exists. Mm -hmm. And after all, science can only get going when something exists. We, for example, have to exist, mm. small point here, but also material things and energy has to exist. So things have to exist before you can get going with science. Mm. And in Christian theology, God is the source of all that exists, the ultimate, if you like, the ground of all being, as some people would put it, um, the ground of everything that exists. So, so I think that's why... Uh, as a Christian, I'm never worried about things that science might find out because I'm exploring oh. God's universe. And, yeah. you know, and a voyage of exploration in God's universe is a rather wonderful thing to do. <laughs> this is Open House. Our guest is Dennis Alexander, Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute for Science. He works in Cambridge. He was the editor until, uh, well, 2013, really, of the journal Science and Christian Beliefs. He's in Australia at the moment for a series of challenging conversations, I hope, uh, with students at New College and, other, and others at uh, the University of New South Wales. Um, I want to come and talk to you about biochemistry, about genetics, where, about where religion takes us there, but we'll do that after this short break. You're on Open House around Australia. On Open House, we're with Dr Dennis Alexander and 
we're discussing the meaning of everything. I mean, this is the best discussion, really. A great conversation that I'm enjoying so much. Let's talk about genetics, DNA. We are made in the image of God. And so, Dr. Alexander, does God have DNA? No, I, th- I think we have to be a little careful of the language here. Again, mm. our language is important. So, And we've been greatly helped here by um, loads of studies over the past decades on the way the phrase image of God was used in the ancient Near East, in Mesopotamian and Egyptian languages. Yes. Because we first encounter, uh, in the Bible, we first encounter that phrase right there in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so all humankind are made in the image of God, male and female, he created them. So... And then you say, well, what did the first readers understand by that? And this is where it gets interesting, I think, because image of God language in the polytheistic uh, rival cultures, uh, especially in the uh, Mesopotamia, referred was only used to refer to kings and priests. It was referred to use to the elite. These were the people made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And we could say gods because they were polytheistic cultures. Mm-hmm. So now in Genesis 1, suddenly um, this language is being used to the whole of humankind. And it's therefore very subversive. It's very political, politically powerful language, subversive language, because it's saying mm. the privileged few used to be in this special category. And now, by the way, the whole of humanity is in this category. Mm. And therefore, it goes on to explain that humankind, the whole of humankind, uh, are delegated by God to care for the created order, to look after it and so forth. And many people will see Genesis 2, therefore, as explaining what that means, really, how do we care, what does that mm. mean, naming mm. the animals, all these wonderful pictures and these great theological essays. And so it's nothing to do with a physical uh, mirror image, as it were, of God, um, although there are certain qualities that human beings have to have before they can be uh, brought into this status of being made in God's image. We, we are different so, yeah. from other parts of creation, however, and as a friend of mine is fond of saying, look, when Christ took on human flesh, then, of course, that was saying something very special about this particular form. I'm indicating myself. I don't actually mean myself, but, you know, the form of all of us. It says something. So Jesus had DNA. That is absolutely right, yes. Of course, God is spirit, and those who worship him in spirit uh, should worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember, Jesus said that to the woman at the well of Samaria. So we know that uh, God is spirit, and God doesn't have any DNA. Um, (laughs) On the other hand, I think what's interesting also is in Genesis chapter 1, on day 6, the animals and the humans are created on day 6. We're lumped together in one day. And I always think, well, that's sort of both hands, isn't it? So clearly we're animals. I mean, as humans, we're animals, and we can study as a biologists you can study humans as animals but we're not nothing but animals okay that's the important point and so only humans in genesis 1 are made in the image of god with these particular responsibilities and because we're asked to name the animals that's also a very significant aspect of god's particular relationship with us that we are in a sense co-creators well, that's right. I think, as I was mentioning, I think in Genesis 2, we have, if you like, a sort of outworking of what it means yes. for practically, in practical terms, caring for the earth, uh, naming the animals, getting married. I mean, these are all facets of Genesis chapter 2, which are a normal part of being made in the image of God. Now, is that how you would view, as a biologist and as a, as a, as a Christian, a theistic evolutionist, as you've described yourself, um, is that how you would view us working with creation, whether it's genetically modifying a crop 
by the way, we've been involved in the natural selection of crop species forever, so we have modified the mm. genome in that way, haven't we, by we have. encouraging this trait and discouraging that trait. Yeah, and, and in dog breeding. And in dog breeding, precisely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So are we being co-creators or are we, in fact, placing ourselves, as many have said, in the position of God? Because we can now create human life uh, in a way that previously, you know, was only done naturally, naturally being, you know, by God. Hmm. Well, I do think we have a mandate, um, starting again in Genesis chapter 1, for hmm. given to humankind to care for the earth and subdue the earth. Actually, the word in Hebrew is quite strong there. Hmm. And, of course, some people have blamed Christians for abuse of the environment, that sort of thing. But I think in the context, it's quite clear that it means looking after the world that, you know, we're delegated by God to care for the created order, to care for the creation and so forth. Seems to me that includes DNA. I mean, there's an awful lot of DNA around in, in biological <laughs> organisms. And so certainly as a biochemist, I see part of that uh, subduing as uh, caring for DNA. And therefore, I don't see anything in principle why uh, Christians shouldn't be involved in genetic engineering when it's used for good purposes. But I do think as we come to the New Testament, the mandate very much patterned on the life of Christ is a mandate for healing and not for enhancement. And I think probably that's where Christians would start um, disagreeing with their transhumanist colleagues who want to take uh, genetic engineering and uh, machines and artificial intelligence and so forth very much in the direction of enhancing humans and giving them greater abilities than they have at present. Whereas I think the Christian mandate centrally in the Bible is is healing, not enhancement. Mm. And at that level, there's no difference perhaps to the ethics of that science than to the ethics of taking an atom, splitting it in two, and are you going to use that to power a city or to blow one up? Well, that's right. I think, you know, the old sort of adage, the old trope that um, science can be used for good or for evil purposes in technology is entirely true. But I do think we have to put a rider on that as well, that I think increasingly with techno-science, the application is almost intrinsic to the scientific developments that are going on. So I think it's a little harder now in many contexts to make an easy division between science and technology because I think they are very bound together. Absolutely. And so we look at artificial, artificial intelligence or whatever, you know. It's a, so the applications are implicit in the development, really. So are we getting to the stage where we can start creating effectively cyborgs by mixing engineering and genetics and artificial intelligence? Well, I think cyborgs are already with us. I mean, if you just think of a cyborg as an interaction between a machine and the brain, let's say, a direct interaction. Uh, in fact, one of your great uh, scientists here who happens to be a Christian, Professor Graham Clark, you know, mm. the invention of the cochlear implant, mm is an example of a cyborg because the cochlear implant with now it's 22 electrodes um they talk directly to the auditory nerves of the brain so they're going straight into which is astounding which is astounding and i suppose sight is uh, next isn't it yes so there's a company um in the united states called orion who now 
have done exactly that. So they have implanted electrodes um, in the visual cortex of blind people, wow. and they now have a little camera mounted on the front, which again, like the cochlear implant, only this time it goes straight into the brain and enables them have enabled uh, some blind people to see to some degree. I mean, to some not not fully normal vision, but it's developing very mm. fast. So that's another, I think, rather wonderful cyborgian technique, you know. And 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 there's another examples or other examples coming through where. Paraplegics who've been sadly, um, you know, confined to wheelchairs and unable to move their muscles and so forth have been trained by again having electrodes stuck in their brains to think, I want to move my right arm. Uh, and they they think to the computer and it will do that. Okay. So they can think thoughts that are transmitted through an interface, a cyborgian interface, to um, a mechanical help on their arm which will move their arm. And I think that's amazing. Well, these are wonderful and they, they conform with the healing aspect that you've um, said is our context after the New Testament or in the New Testament uh, period. What about... Um Reproductive technologies, though. Now, three-person babies, for instance, um, gene shear technology, you, you're taking um, part of the cell that doesn't go to the identity of the person and you're using that um, to make a viable embryo where it wouldn't normally be one. Where, where do we draw the line or is there a line? Yes, I know there can be a bit of a fuzzy boundary here, okay? and that's always the <laughs> you know, slippery slope <laughs> argument, you know, how far do we go? Uh, this came up actually in Britain a few years ago, there was a big discussion about it, I and mean, what we're talking about here is the tiny little bit of DNA that we have in our, all of our cells that we inherit from our mother called mitochondrial DNA. So mm-hmm. the mitochondria are the sort of little powerhouses of the cells, and the DNA in there we get uh, from our mother, hence, by the way, mitochondrial Eve and that whole idea, and so that bit of DNA sometimes can be mutated in such a way that it generates very nasty mitochondrial diseases. These are horrible things to have. So the suggestion then is why don't we take the DNA out of a healthy egg and we then put that that mitochondrial DNA into uh, the mother's egg um, who um, has this particular uh, genetic defect and it's fertilized by the father's sperm in vitro, so it has to involve in vitro fertilization. And so I see that as a bit like a kidney transplant or a heart transplant for somebody else. Um, it's not quite the same. It, I would call it mitochondrial DNA donation. Um, I think right. the language of the press, sometimes you get the language of three-person parenthood. Mm-hmm. I think that's very unhelpful. We're not talking here about three parents. We're talking here about the donation, I think very sacrificial donation, of healthy mitochondrial DNA to help a couple have uh, kids who don't die from horrible mitochondrial diseases. I think that's great. I think that's great. So now the difference, of course, between having a transplant of a heart or kidney is that that mitochondrial DNA will be inherited by all the succeeding generations. That that uh, early embryo will grow up, be implanted in the mother, and uh, you know will then hopefully go to become a full adult who will then get married and have children and so forth. So, so that is a healed person from that particular disease. There are some risks. Um, it's still, you know, hasn't been fully tested out. Or there's been one baby born in Mexico by, uh, by mitochondrial DNA transplantation who seems to be doing well. Uh, so there are some risks that are being worked on. I actually have to think, I think it's rather wonderful myself. Is there a, is there a line then that you wouldn't cross? 
Well, again, given I current think, technologies, I suppose. Yeah, in the line, whereas, I mean, there is a, fun, okay, so there is a fuzzy boundary between mm. healing and enhancement. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Now, just give, give an example here in, uh, in Sydney, there was a press report that came out in the UK, actually, a few week, couple of weeks ago, uh, by a research group here who want to use kangaroo tendons to transplant into athletes who have damaged their tendons. Kangaroo tendons, I'm told, I'm not an expert in kangaroo tendons, but I'm told they're six times stronger than human tendons. So once this procedure takes and works well, is that person enhanced? I, I suspect they will be if, if the tendon is six times you know, stronger and so forth. So I think this is where the fuzzy boundary comes. Mm. Uh, vaccination, after all, gives us a better immune system probably than we'd ever get, you know, um, in the normal course of events and so on. I'm wearing glasses. Uh, maybe my eyesight is better than it ever would be, you know, <laughs> and so forth. So there is a fuzzy boundary. But on the other hand, I just think, you know, once one goes into trying to enhance intelligence or make people athletes who are super fast or whatever it might be, yes. I think we all recognize that is something way beyond having a kangaroo tendon in your body. You know, this is something of a different scale, a different order, really, I would suggest. You talk, Dr. Alexander, though, as someone who is unfazed, unchallenged in your faith, by uh, the science that you've committed your professional life to. Uh, are you sure? Is there nothing that would test your faith? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, funny enough, this came up in last night's lecture where I was promoting the idea that we all have genuine free will and that it's um, mm. something that is just a characteristic of humankind. Um, we're all kind of born with it. And as we develop, we have genuine free will and so forth. And there was a very good question from somebody. They said, well... If it could be shown, you know, definitely that our free will, feeling of free will is an illusion, will that shake your faith? I thought that was a rather good question, actually. It was a very sharp question. Mm. So I said, well, as, as a matter of fact, people have had a really hard time trying to think of things that would undermine our strong sense of free will. Now, there are some, some things in the neurosciences, um, some old experiments by Benjamin Libet that have been much discussed, all that sort of thing, um, and which I personally don't think undermines our understanding of free will. So whenever it's been sort of tested and looked at, you know, it seems like it looks pretty safe so far from subversion, from new scientific data and that sort of thing. Um, and so I personally, I, I had to say, well, I just don't think it's looking very likely that science is going to come up with some subversion. Of course, we know that free will emerges in our minds and our minds, you know, emerge from our brains and so forth. So I certainly believe that. Um, but I'm not sure that anything we discover about the workings of the brain, I'm not quite sure how that would subvert really our deep, profound sense of the freedom of the will and so forth. So in other words, those are the sort of things one could discuss, I think. So, but honestly, I don't really, I can't quite see what kind of things it would be. You know, that's the trouble. Because after all, we're exploring God's universe, you know, as I mentioned earlier. So, um, and since we're in God's universe, I don't see why there would be anything that would come along that necessarily would undermine my faith in God's universe. Wonderful place to leave it. Dennis Alexander, thank you so much. It's been, it's been a wonderful conversation, and I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Dr. Dennis Alexander, from 1992 till 2013, he was the editor of the journal Science and Christian Belief, an eminent molecular biologist and immunologist, and the founding director, the emeritus director indeed, of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at St. Edmunds College at the University of Cambridge, where he's an emeritus fellow. 
Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.